the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So understand this, folks, right at the onset, the theme of the Olivet Discourse, then, is the future as it relates to the final years and days of this present age leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, most people are interested in learning about the future. In fact, we are fascinated by the future. We are intrigued by the future, especially as it relates to our personal welfare. We would love to have information about the future, such as what's going to happen with the economy. Where is it going? What's the weather going to be like for an upcoming trip? What breakthroughs in technology and scientific advances might be coming down the road that could could benefit our lives? Yes, mankind has always wanted to know about the future. They spend millions of dollars each year on schemes that try to predict what will happen. Not knowing the future leads to anxiety, depression, illness, and even suicide. God has given an accurate picture in His Word, the Bible, of what will take place on this planet in the future. It's called prophecy, and biblical prophecy is 100% accurate. The trouble is that sinful man will not turn to the God of the universe to read and believe His written message. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class coming to you from Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. Today we begin a new series of studies from the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. These classes will all be taken from chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel. The first three classes are taken from a message by Steve called Foundations for the Olivet Discourse. At the end of our class today, I will tell you how you can obtain a copy of this class to listen to again. Right now, however, let's get settled into our seats and listen as Pastor Steve comes to lead us in this fascinating study. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And I want to read to you the first 14 verses of this chapter, though we will not cover all of them today. I want you to see a little bit of the flow of Matthew 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you 
are not frightened for those things must take place. But that's not yet the end for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, these verses contain the opening statements. They are the opening statements of one of the most fascinating portions of Scripture because it deals with biblical prophecy, deals with end time events. The entire section of this teaching covers two very lengthy chapters in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. It is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. You'll hear that a lot. The Olivet Discourse. Why? For the simple reason that Jesus gave this teaching while he was located on the Mount of Olives. So we call it the Olivet Discourse. Now, what prompted Jesus to deliver such a long and extensive discourse about end times were a couple of questions put to him by his disciples. That's what triggered all this. According to what Matthew tells us in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, the disciples wanted to know two specific things. They said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the answer that Jesus gave to them to these two questions, even though it may look like three, the last part is just one. There are really two questions. The answer that Jesus gave to them is this long discourse about his return from heaven to earth and the events relating to it. So understand this, folks, right at the onset, the theme of the Olivet Discourse then is the future as it relates to the final years and days of this present age leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, most people are interested in learning about the future. In fact, we are fascinated by the future. We are intrigued by the future, especially as it relates to our personal welfare. We would love to have information about the future, such as what's going to happen with the economy. Where is it going? What's the weather going to be like for an upcoming trip? What breakthroughs in technology and scientific advances might be coming down the road that could, could benefit our lives? When will the Buccaneers win another game? You know, stuff like that. We want to know about the future. Well, in addition to this kind of information pertaining to the future, the fact that many non-Christians seek daily guidance from such things as horoscopes and fortune tellers and tarot cards and things of, of this nature, it indicates there is a high interest. There is a high interest that our world puts upon trying to know the future. However, the only place you'll find totally accurate predictions about the future is the Bible. No other place. But the Bible doesn't reveal such matters as economic trends or 
weather forecasts or how you're going to die or when you're you're going to die. Doesn't even disclose what tomorrow will bring. In fact, James in his little letter says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What an absolutely truthful statement that is. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But the Bible does tell us a great deal about the future as it relates to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Consider these fascinating statistics about Bible prophecy. There are 1,500 passages in the Old Testament that refer to the second coming of Messiah. 1,500 of them. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned in Scripture, the second coming of Christ is mentioned eight times. Next to the subject of faith, the return of Jesus Christ is the most dominant topic in the New Testament. And the most extensive and lengthy teaching that Jesus ever gave about his return is right here in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. Now, this morning, I want to simply introduce this important discourse to you by giving you two foundational truths that will help you to understand the content of Christ's teaching in this discourse. And that's more important than you might realize. And let me tell you why. Because this is one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted portions of the Word of God. Let me give you some examples where people go astray on the Olivet Discourse. First of all, look at verse 14. I read it just a few minutes ago, but look at it again. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, based on this one statement, there are many Christians who would say that this is about missions today, evangelizing the world today. And they would say that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because we are being slack and slow about getting the gospel out into all the world. Once the gospel goes to every corner of the globe and everybody has heard the salvation message of Christ, then Jesus will come again. Folks, I have to tell you, this isn't talking about evangelizing the world today. This isn't talking about modern missions today. This is not talking about us evangelizing to the ends of the earth and then Jesus will return. You say, well, what is it talking about? We have to come back to here when we deal with this. But I'm telling you right now what it's not talking about. Secondly, look at verses 32 and, uh, through 34. Matthew 24, starting in verse 32. Jesus said, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he's near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Now, the common interpretation by many based on these verses is that we can set dates for the Lord's return. And let me tell you how they reason this. Many have interpreted these verses to be a prediction of the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. And so their thinking is, since Israel became a new nation in 1948, and Jesus said that the generation that saw this take place would not pass away. And since a generation in the Bible is generally about 40 years, then Jesus should have come back in 1988. 
And if you were alive in 1988 and were a Christian and were in an evangelical church, you would know that there was a big to do about that. There were many Christians leading up to 1988 who believed with all their hearts that Jesus was coming again that year. There was even a booklet written called something like 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I always wondered why this man charged money for that booklet if he really believed the Lord was coming in 1988. But obviously the Lord didn't come in 1988. So this man went back and he said, I miscalculated, it'll be 1989. We didn't come back in 1989. And there were many people who were sadly disappointed because they really believed that Christ was supposed to return in 1988. And listen, I'm not talking about fringe people on, a, on the fringe of Christianity. I knew many people back then who I thought knew better, but apparently they didn't because they embraced that teaching. But I've got to tell you, that what Jesus said in these verses have nothing to do with 1948, has nothing to do with 1988 or any year around 1988. They have nothing to do with the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. What is this about? Once again, you've got to be here for those studies. Another portion of the Olivet Discourse that has been grossly misunderstood by many Christians is the statement by Jesus that when he returns, some people will be taken from the earth and some will remain. Now, Jesus did say that. He said it in verses 37 through 41. But the question is, what did he mean by that? Look at verse starting at verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, contrary to what many have believed, these verses are not referring to what is known as the rapture of the church. For those of you not familiar with that term rapture, the rapture of the church is a truth taught elsewhere in the New Testament that just prior to a horrible time on earth known as the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus is going to snatch away or rapture or remove his church and take us to heaven. Now, I realize that the language of Matthew 24 may sound a lot like it is referring to the rapture, but it's not. It's not about that. Why do I say that? Because the Olivet Discourse has nothing to do with the church or the rapture. Then what is this discourse about? Well, that's what we want to discover this morning as we look at two foundational truths concerning the Olivet Discourse. Folks, get these truths down and you really shouldn't have any major difficulty in understanding the rest of the teaching. First foundational truth of the Olivet Discourse is, number one, the Olivet Discourse is related to the destruction of Israel's temple. In order to really understand this discourse, you have to, you have to first know what triggered it. Where did it come from? Why did Jesus begin teaching on the Mount of Olives about this? What was it that led up to this? Well, you need to understand the previous chapters that lead up to Matthew 24. Understand, and I remind you, that those chapters contain the events of Christ's last week 
in the city of Jerusalem that led up to his crucifixion. Remember this, the week had begun on a high note, began on Sunday, the first day of the week, with the Lord's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He was hailed as the Messiah. He was applauded as the son of of David because they thought he had come to deliver them from Rome. But on Monday, things began to turn negative. When after clearing the temple out of the crooked merchants who exploited the people and then healing some ill folks, people who were ill on the temple property, some of the religious leaders began to express their hostility towards Christ. They they said, how can you accept this praise like this from children? How can you do this? And so they were already showing some antagonism, but it got worse. On Tuesday morning, as soon as Jesus entered the temple area, the chief priests and the elders who were in charge of the temple began attacking him. They began questioning him and challenging him concerning his authority as to who gave him this right to clear out people from the temple. Who gave him this right to heal people on the temple grounds? What rabbi, in other words, did you learn under? In the name of what rabbi are you doing this? Who's your authority? Now, in response to this challenge to his authority, Jesus gave some rather uncomplimentary parables depicting the evil character and attitudes of these religious leaders. They, in turn, reacted to these unflattering parables by trying to force Jesus into saying something that would be self-condemning. So they asked him some very tough theological questions, thinking that he has no clue as to how to answer this. He'll expose himself as a messianic fraud. Better yet, he'll get himself in trouble with Rome. We'll report it to Rome. They'll arrest him. They'll crucify the guy. That's their thinking. But Jesus never incriminated himself. Instead, he answers with brilliance. He answers in a way that reveals his magnificent wisdom, his insight, his majesty, his graciousness. So that at the end of chapter 22, we read no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That is to say, Jesus had silenced his accusers. So having left them speechless, now it was his turn to go on the offensive by making some accusations of his own. And that's exactly what he does. First, he warns the disciples and the crowd, the multitude who had gathered around him to hear him teach. He warns them not to be like the wicked scribes and the Pharisees because these were terribly evil men. And he mentions how evil they they were. First, he accuses them of being hypocrites. There are uncaring, greedy men who cared only about gaining prestige and honor for themselves. They loved the greetings. They loved to be called rabbi. They did everything to be noticed by men. Then the Lord turns to these scribes and Pharisees and addresses them directly by pronouncing seven judgments. These are woe judgments upon them for their many hypocrisies. Finally, when the last of the woe judgments have ended, The Lord expresses great personal anguish and grief about Israel's rejection of him. He says that his desire was always to gather them together like a mother, a mother hen gathers and protects her baby chicks from harm. He said, but you were unwilling to do that. You were unwilling to respond to me. That's chapter 23, verse 37. Then. 
the Lord announces to the people that there is a penalty for rejecting him. And that penalty was that God was going to abandon them, going to withdraw from them. Remember chapter 23, verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house refers to the whole nation, but the heart of the nation was the temple. Understand that. That's how they would have understood it. The nation, but the heart of the nation, the soul of the nation, is the temple. That's where worship took place, where God's glory dwelt. Their whole sacrificial system about approaching God based out of the temple, temple worship. But then he went on to say that this abandonment was only temporary. Verse 39, for I say to you that from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, there's coming a day when you'll see me again. And when you see me again, then you will really recognize who I am. You'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll recognize that I'm your Messiah. Now, folks, it's right after this statement that Jesus and his disciples left the temple area. Right after saying, this place is abandoned. You'll not see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got up and they begin to leave the temple area. They walk out through the eastern gate, departing from the city of Jerusalem. And they begin to head back to the village of Bethany to spend the night there. It's just beyond the Mount of of Olives. But Matthew tells us that while they were leaving the temple area, while they were still there but leaving that area, the Lord's disciples say something that is very interesting. Verse 1, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, Mark in his gospel account tells us additional information that gives us more insight about what's really going on here. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, we read, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, why would the disciples point out the wonderful stones and buildings of the temple? Jesus knew how wonderful they were. He just spent days there. He was aware of this. He knew about the temple stones, the buildings that comprise this area. He's very familiar with them. So why would any of his disciples feel the need to point this out to him? Well, for one thing, this temple was magnificent. It wasn't unusual for someone to admire. It was breathtaking. It was absolutely magnificent. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there are many who considered the temple building to be the most beautiful structure standing at that time in history. Keep in mind, the temple wasn't simply a building. It was, it was a building, but it was an entire complex consisting of the sanctuary. There were various courts where people would gather. There were balconies, colonnades, porches. The temple complex was massive in size, too. It took up one-sixth of the size of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem today has expanded far beyond the ancient boundaries, but in that day, it was one-sixth, the temple complex, one-sixth of the whole city. Here's how Josephus, the Jewish historian, described the beauty of the temple. He wrote, and I quote, 
The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So it must have been absolutely gorgeous, and it was. It will be interesting to learn what prompted the disciples' statements for Jesus to look at that beautiful temple. It was the center of Jewish culture and religion at that time, and Jesus, being God, knew what was in store for that house of worship. We'll look further into this conversation in tomorrow's program. You can listen to this Bible class again by going to our website, versebyverseradio.org where you can stream or download it for future reference. There are many other messages available for free downloading as well. Please avail yourself of these great resources that will help you in your spiritual journey. While there you can sign up for our free podcasting service and the free monthly newsletter. That's versebyverseradio one word, dot org. If you have questions concerning this broadcast or anything else in the Christian life, you may call us at 727-239-0306 during regular business hours. We'd love to talk and pray with you. In tomorrow's class, we will look as Jesus talks about the future of that magnificent structure. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.